Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Morning, everyone. Happy Thursday. We are so glad you're with us. Yep. Happy Thursday. Happy Thursday. we got a lot to get to. Let's start with five things to know for this Thursday, May 25th. Ron DeSantis, officially a presidential candidate, but his big launch on Twitter spaces was, as predicted by some, overshadowed by technical glitches and his opponents pounced. Also new overnight, America's credit rating is at risk. A key ratings agency has now put the U.S. on watch with one week to go until a possible default. And House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is set to send House members home for the weekend with no deal. Meanwhile, U.S. intelligence is now indicating that a Ukrainian group may have been behind that recent drone attack on the Kremlin. U.S. officials picking up chatter of Ukrainians blaming one another. An anti-LGBTQ campaign takes on corporate America again, Target now removing some of its pride merchandise after some of its employees were threatened. And fans around the world agree. She was simply the best. The queen of rock and roll, Tina Turner, has died at age 83. We're going to remember her life and her legacy on CNN This Morning, which starts right now. She was the queen. The queen. Simply the best. She really was. We're going to remember her today. We're going to honor her throughout the program this morning. You're going to hear a lot of Tina Turner (laughs) this morning, so get ready. But we do begin with politics. And Florida Governor Ron DeSantis' presidential campaign is officially underway after a rough start full of technical difficulties. All right. Sorry about that. We've got so many people here that I think we are. We are uh, kind of melting the servers, uh, which is a good sign. I don't know. Is it a good sign for the launch (laughs) of a presidential campaign? A lot of people were interested, certainly, logging on. The live stream of his big announcement on Twitter with Elon Musk crashed multiple times. It is making headlines for the wrong reasons this morning, including in his home state. The Sarasota Herald-Tribune's headline reads, DeSantis' launch failure But his campaign is powering forward today. Top fundraisers are gathered at a hotel in Miami to strategize, raise cash to take on Donald Trump and other GOP contenders. So let's begin with our Jessica Dean. She is live in Miami. Good morning, Jessica. A lot of hype about this launch. I think we're all surprised. A unique way to do it. Didn't go off as expected. Yeah, good morning, Poppy. This was such an anticipated moment. Of course, Ron DeSantis's entrance into this race has been talked about and analyzed for months and months now. So for him to finally get in was a big moment. And his people, his campaign, his team, they wanted to do this in an unconventional way. They want his campaign to be unconventional. But the, the downside to that or the potential issue is that you can run into technical glitches. Technical glitches plaguing Florida Governor Ron DeSantis's presidential announcement. So they just keep crashing, huh? Yeah, I think we've got <laughs> a, just a massive number of people online, so it's um, 
servers are straining somewhat. The start of the audio-only event on Twitter Spaces suffered disrupted audio and repeatedly kicked users out. Fox News will not crash during this interview. DeSantis afterward going on Fox News, spinning the glitchy rollout this way. We had a huge audience. It did. It was the biggest they'd ever had. It did break the Twitter space. Former President Donald Trump slamming it on Truth Social, posting, quote, Is the DeSantis launch fatal? Yes. It took some 20 minutes for Elon Musk and team to sort out the glitches. I am running for president of the United States to lead our great American comeback. While not mentioning him by name, DeSantis also took a veiled jab at Donald Trump. We must end the culture of losing that has infected the Republican Party in recent years. Back on Fox, DeSantis announced his day one plan if elected president, firing the FBI director. I would not keep Chris Ray as director. I think the DOJ and FBI have lost their way. I think that they've been weaponized against uh, Americans who think like me and you. DeSantis, who signed a six-week abortion ban in Florida earlier this year, offering this view on the issue. I think that there's uh, there's role for both the federal uh, and the states. And while it remains to be seen if Trump will appear on the first two debate stages, DeSantis said count him in. I think we should debate. I think the people want to hear it. The campaign saying that they raised $1 million in the first hour after that announcement. And DeSantis is sitting on an unprecedented amount of cash, some $100 million, Poppy. As you mentioned, he has his donors here in Miami. They're all getting together today to really try to maximize this moment and raise even more money as they launch him into this race. And we do expect him to hit the campaign trail pretty quickly and pretty aggressively in those early states. So we're certainly keeping our eye on that. And that's what's really going to matter, right? We can talk about these glitches. We can talk about uh, what that means and, and analyze it. But ultimately, it comes down to the voters and him getting out That's in these right. early states and how they're going to react to him. We'll see how that goes in the coming days. That's 100 percent right. Jessica Dean, thanks for the reporting. DeSantis' campaign tried to play off the glitchy live stream event. Glitchy might be putting it nicely as, quote, breaking the Internet. But the stumbling start gave his current and potential future rivals an opening to troll him. Trump, still not choosing to use Twitter yet, said it was a disaster. Biden's campaign immediately using it to fundraise, writing this link works and linking supporters to where they could donate to his campaign. Even Fox News taking a swipe at DeSantis and Twitter overall as the headline on their homepage last night said, quote, amateur hour and much type DeSantis presidential announcement, a disaster. Fox also boasted that you could actually see and hear DeSantis at 8 p.m. when he had an interview on their network. Joining us now is the co-founder and editor-in-chief of Semaphore, Ben Smith. A, this was entirely predictable. B, if this happened... By the way, predicted this yesterday But not because I'm like some genius. It was just pretty obvious. (laughs) And it was an audio-only event. But if this had happened with a regular campaign launch, that staff would probably be fired if it went this poorly. And every headline talking about your launch was about the fact that it was not great. Well, I think, I mean, I think, you know, Elon Musk is a huge figure. Ron DeSantis famously is not heavily reliant on his staff. I don't think, that, I don't think there was anyone to fire beyond the candidate himself, who, you know, talking to Elon Musk, making a decision like this. I mean, incredibly, incredibly strange thing to do. I mean, it does give you kind of renewed respect for what this is. Just putting on television, you know, one thing about television, and I'm sort of an internet person, so it pains me to say this, <laughs> but you, 
You it turn works. it on and it does work. I mean, it's kind of <laughs> most of the time. Don't a drink. Str- strange new respect, right? It just turns on and and and, and goes out there. Though oh, honestly, the strangest part of the whole thing is you have Rupert Murdoch, who remains the most powerful figure in Republican politics, and all he wants to do is help elect Ron DeSantis. I mean, he's busy. There's an email that came out where he said he wants to make Donald Trump a non-person, and DeSantis just begins his campaign by sticking his finger in Fox News's eyes, and they're really trying to help him. And so they come out making fun of him. That, to me, was the strangest part of the whole thing. What do you think it says sort of more broadly, though, about Elon Musk continuing to say, like, Tucker Carlson, launching a show on Twitter, you know, come here, we are the next, if you will, and we will replace traditional media? I mean, I think they're making a real run at Fox News. They're not going to replace... I think their, their, their space in the culture is broadly shrinking. But conservative media is a big place. Fox has huge problems. Twitter, other places like the Daily Wire are starting you to fight get it for to this work. space. I mean, if it couldn't work perfectly for this. You, you, you do. Media is a weird, hard business. And I think they had this nice platform business and, and are trying to turn it into some broadcast thing that, that, that really didn't work. Yeah. And also the point of launching your presidential campaign is normally just straight down the middle. Here's my pitch. Here's why I'm running. There wasn't a ton of that in the Twitter spaces once it did get started. Yeah. Of course, he later was seemed like a more typical candidate, but there, there's a moment where we kind of pulled a highlight of what he was talking about last night. Biden's allowed woke ideology to drive his agenda. We will never surrender to the woke mob, and we will leave woke ideology in the dustbin of history. And they're not going to be roadkill in some type of woke Olympics, we did provide protection uh, against this debanking with the woke banking. The woke mind virus is basically a form of cultural Marxism. We have no uh, choice but to wage a war on woke. It's, this is the core bet DeSantis is making, that, that it's talking about woke debanking, that those are ideas and words that will penetrate deeply enough into the elderly Iowa primary electorate that that will, that will pull people out for him. I think, you know, Donald Trump ran with the same level of sort of anger and energy, but the issue that he chose was immigration, which is not hard to explain. And I do think the bigger bet here is that these things that people basically talk about on Twitter, that lots of Republicans don't know what these words mean. Most Americans, if you say, are you concerned about woke debanking, are just going to look at you like you're crazy. And so, I mean, the big bet is that these cultural battles that really live on Twitter, started on Twitter are very hard to understand if you leave Twitter, are going to move a lot of people in places like Iowa and New Hampshire next, next winter. Yeah. We'll see what it looks like. Obviously, you know, the glitches were overshadowing the launch, but we'll see what the actual substance of the actual campaign looks like now that he's a candidate. Yeah, there's, there's a long way to go. Yeah. Ben Smith, thank you. Thank you. So this, to the economy, the credit ratings agency Fitch has placed the United States on ratings watch negative. It's a bad thing, to be clear. It reflects the uncertainty surrounding the current debt ceiling debate and the possibility of the country's first ever default. The White House responded. The Treasury Department responded overnight. Here's what the White House said in part, quote, this is one more piece of evidence. The default is not an option. Treasury saying, quote, tonight's warning underscores the need for swift bipartisan action by Congress to raise or suspend the debt limit. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has been warning the U.S. could run out of money to pay its bills by the 1st of June. That's exactly a week from today. And in just a couple of hours, lawmakers are set to recess. Senior Republican officials tell CNN the prospects for passing a deal by next week are grim. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy says negotiators did make some progress during a meeting at the White House. 
And he tells reporters he thinks he thinks they could reach a deal soon. But there's a number of issues that are out there that we've been working on. I think being able to find some ways that we could probably get to fruition on a couple of these. There's still a number of them out there. So I want to work as hard as we can and not stop. Lauren Fox joins us on Capitol Hill this morning. Uh, lawmakers will be back. Uh, call back if negotiations do, in fact, reach you know, a deal to vote. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right, Poppy. There's some good news and bad news in the message that you are getting from Republican leadership right now. On the positive side, they do feel like they made some gains yesterday in more than four hours of negotiations between the Republican side and the White House yesterday at the White House. And one of the things that became increasingly clear is there is some agreement over rescinding some of those unspent funds for the COVID pandemic, some of the money that went out to states and localities that just hasn't been spent yet. Given the fact that it's now three years from the start of that pandemic, there's agreement from Republicans and Democrats that they should claw some of that money back. Meanwhile, they are still trying to find a way forward on the huge question of how much money the government should be spending over the next several years. The reality is, even if they can clinch a deal in the next 72 hours, which could happen, there is a possibility that that is not enough time to get you to the June 1st deadline. That is because over and over again, Republican leaders have insisted they are going to give their members 72 hours, that's three days, to read whatever bill and deal they come up with. Then you have to move this through the U.S. Senate as well. That is going to be a heavy lift. We should also note that there are some Democrats who are getting very nervous about the direction of these discussions. And you have to remember that Nancy Pelosi is no longer leading the House Democrats. They have a new leadership team. So a huge test for Hakeem Jeffries and Catherine Clark, who are going to be leading that charge if a deal comes together to get the votes on their side to pass it out of the House. Poppy? Lauren Fox, one week to go. Let's hope. Thanks very much. Caitlin? Also this morning, new U.S. intelligence indicates that a Ukrainian group may have been responsible for that Kremlin drone attack that happened earlier this month. Sources now say that U.S. officials have picked up some chatter from members of Ukraine's military, speculating that Ukraine special forces conducted that operation. The U.S. hasn't reached a definitive conclusion, I should note. And right now, officials do say it's unlikely that the president, President Zelensky, is the one who ordered that attack. CNN's Natasha Bertrand joins us now from the Pentagon. Natasha, what is Ukraine saying about this intelligence that the U.S. is picking up? And is there a sense that it will become definitive? Yeah, Caitlin, well, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has denied that the Ukrainians were behind this attack. But what we're learning is that U.S. officials have picked up chatter among Ukrainian officials discussing the possibility and kind of speculating that Ukrainian special operations forces were behind this attack. Now, that's not definitive. And U.S. Uh, intelligence officials only assess with low confidence at this point that any Ukrainian group was actually behind this attack. However, they do believe it is highly unlikely that Zelensky himself or any other senior Ukrainian government official were either involved in this or even had knowledge of it before it actually happened. Now, importantly, uh, the Russians continue to blame the Ukrainians, but there's still no definitive proof of whether this was perhaps a pro-Ukrainian uh, group based inside Russia that did this, or even perhaps uh, a group of Russians inside Russia who, who did this. this. The intelligence community is really looking at a number of possibilities here, uh, and and it is you know not the first time we should note that the U.S. Uh, has suspected that the Ukrainians have been behind 
an attack on Russian soil. There was a car bombing in Moscow, of course. They killed the daughter of a very prominent Russian uh, political figure that was uh, attributed by U.S. intelligence officials to Ukrainians. There have been other instances of, uh, of attacks on Russian soil that the U.S. believes uh, were likely Ukrainian groups. But look, there's still no proof here that anyone in the government had something to do with this. The U.S. is using this chatter and, you know, information about who would be motivated to do this to inform their assessments. And I guess the question would be, if they do assess eventually that it is someone within the Ukrainian government that was behind this, and the U.S. has been so out there talking about not wanting Ukraine to strike inside Russia, is this something that you think Republicans could say it would hinder aid to Ukraine? What is your sense of that? Well, it certainly has hindered aid to Ukraine in the sense that the administration has not wanted to give the Ukrainians long-range weapons that could potentially allow them to launch attacks inside Russia. So, for example, those long-range missiles that Ukraine has been begging for that can reach uh, hundreds and hundreds of miles. The U.S. has said, no, that's kind of a red line for us at this point because we don't want to give you the option of being able to strike deep inside Russia. But when it comes to broader U.S. aid, you know, the U.S. has said that we uh, don't want Ukraine to be attacking Russia in this way, and we don't want them to use U.S. weapons to do that. But also, it's up to Ukraine how they wage this war, ultimately, Caitlin. Yeah. Natasha, we're trying to keep us updated if they do move that to a definitive conclusion. Well, Donald Trump's legal team is now push, uh, pushing Attorney General Merrick Garland to shut down federal investigations of the former president. We'll tell you the argument they're making about why. That's next. And saying goodbye to a legend, a superstar. We'll have the latest tributes pouring in for the queen of rock and roll, Tina Turner. What a voice, what a woman. And this morning, the world is mourning the death of the queen of rock and roll, Tina Turner. Fans laying flowers by her Hollywood Walk of Fame star in Los Angeles and outside of her home in Switzerland. Turner's family says she died peacefully there on Tuesday after a long illness. She was 83 years old and tributes to her are pouring in from friends and fellow superstars. Mick Jagger calling her a friend who was enormously talented. Mariah Carey describing her as legendary, iconic, and a diva superstar. And of course, her friend Oprah calling her, fittingly, simply the best. Throughout her decades-long career, Tina Turner won 12 Grammys, sold over 100 million records, and was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Twice, once with her ex-husband and then again solo just two years ago. She released hit after hit, but in 1997, she told Larry King which one was her favorite. I think uh, simply the best. Why? It's very special because at the time when I got it, no one believed in it but me. She skyrocketed to fame after partnering with the singer Ike Turner, who she later married. But after years of suffering physical and emotional abuse, she left him and she started over with almost nothing. She made her solo comeback a decade later when she was in her 40s and released a multi-platinum album that included her hit song, What's Love Got to Do With It? Joining us with more on her iconic life and career is Rolling Stone's senior writer, Brittany Spanos. Thank you so much. I mean, just 
I think this reverberated everywhere when people heard the news yesterday. Yeah, I, I felt crushed when I read it. It was just so devastating. She's such an icon. I mean, she's someone that I think all of us have heard her music for so many years and grew up loving her. And she's fantastic. It's really devastating. You are a senior writer at Rolling Stone. She was the first black and female artist to be on the cover of Rolling Stone. We talked yeah. about how she was inducted in the Hall of, uh, Hall of Fame, not once, but, but twice. Talk about the impact she leaves on music. Yeah, she was also the second cover ever of Rolling Stone, too. That's that's the other thing. Like, that is that is a big part of that impact, right? Is like, she is the foundation of so much of rock and roll and yeah. performance and all of that. You know, there's every great rock star, every great pop star is either directly or indirectly affected by Tina Turner's performance style. Her vocal performance is something that everyone has tried to imitate. Every great rock singer is trying to be like Tina Turner, the greatest rock singer of all time. I'm always so impressed by someone who's had such struggles in their personal yes. life and how they uh, come back from that, how they still have maintained professional success. You know, we were just talking about her song, What's Love Got To Do With It? That was also the name of the movie. And she was once talking about about the abuse that she suffered and what it was like to come back from that in an interview with Larry King. Did the picture do it justice? Yes, I think in a way I, I would have liked for them to have had more truth. Um, but according to Disney, this, it's impossible that people would not have believed the truth. Do you realize that you are a feminist hero in America, heroine? Your wife just told me that. <laughs> no, do you realize that? I'm beginning to. You see, it wasn't something that I planned. I, I kind of see it as a gift because of the life I lived. It had a meaning. And I think that the meaning was all of what is happening now. I think that if I had not had the, if I had not given the story to the world, maybe my life would not be as it is. I mean, the impact of those comments, February 1997. Yeah, I mean, she, domestic abuse, domestic violence wasn't something that was talked about openly and publicly when she came forward. And she also came forward at a time before she even blew up again, before she even had sort of the, the world at mm -hmm. her fingertips. And so that incredible bravery is something that is a big part of her legacy. But also, you know, the, the trauma doesn't define her. By that point in her life, this is this is someone who was selling out stadiums around the world. You know, that she had usurped everything that she'd even done with Ike. It was all about what Tina was and is. But she suffered this abuse for 16 years. And when she finally, she talked about the day she finally decided to leave him, he abused her again in the car from the airport to the hotel. And, and she said she left with 36 cents in her pocket and a mobile credit card. But she said that day I felt proud. I felt strong. I felt like Martin Luther King. Yeah. It, it took her, it, it was like a rebirth for her in a sense on her own with that strength. Yeah, I mean, she was so young when she started working with Ike and when she eventually married him. She had two young children. She was raising his previous two children as her own. She knew she needed to get out and she knew she needed to leave. And I mean, to suffer that type of abuse on top of having that be someone that's also employing you, that was her livelihood. Yeah. That was yeah. her entire life. And to do that and to start over, she literally started from scratch. And it's incredible what she was able to achieve. Well, Brittany, thank you for helping us remember her, honor her, the yeah, queen. Yeah, thank you for having me. I have you. Also this morning, we're tracking this story from the south out of Mississippi where an 11-year-old boy called wow. police. He needed help. He ended up being shot, though, by a responding officer. We have the latest on his condition and how the police department is now responding.
He called 911, needing help, but then he was shot in the chest by an officer. This 11-year-old boy from Mississippi is now thankfully at home and recovering this morning, but his family is demanding to know why things went so wrong. CNN's Nick Valencia is tracking this story. Nick, I mean, obviously that is everyone's immediate reaction here is how does a child who calls the police for help end up being shot by the responding officer? What do you know? Well, his mother tells me, Caitlin, that after Darren Murray was shot in the chest by police, he asked his mother, what did I do wrong? Why did I get shot? And according to his mother, Nikayla Murray, all of this unfolded at 4 a.m. on Saturday when she says the father of another one of her children showed up at her home at 4 in the morning irate. She was scared for her safety, so she snuck a cell phone to Adarian to tell him to call 911. He did. And she says when the officer showed up at her home, he had his gun drawn already. He asked everyone to get out of the home. And that's when Adarian came from around the corner of a hallway into the living room. And she says that police officer opened fire once, shooting him in the chest. Adarian was put on a ventilator at the ICU at the University Medical Center in Jackson, Mississippi, about 100 miles away. This all unfolded in a predominantly black area of the Mississippi Delta, a very impoverished community. Uh, he suffered a lacerated liver, fractured lungs, and developed a collapsed, uh, or, or, I'm sorry, uh, developed a collapsed lung and fractured ribs, as well as a lacerated liver. All of this, Caitlin, uh, was reportedly caught on police body camera, though that has not been released. Caitlin? What's the sense of why that body camera footage has not been released yet? You know, well, I want to make this clear. You know, we repeatedly called the local police department yesterday to try to get answers from them. They never got back to us after multiple messages left. But the uh, Mississippi Bureau of Investigation, they did get back to us to say that they are not releasing this body camera because of an ongoing investigation. Meanwhile, this officer has been identified uh, as Greg Capers. The local board of aldermen voted to place him on paid administrative leave. The family and the family attorney, uh, they're making this very clear. They want this officer charged. They want him fired. They're planning a sit-in protest at the local city hall later this morning. Caitlin? Nick Valencia, I know you'll stay on top of this story. Thank you. You bet. Ahead, former President Trump making a direct appeal to the Attorney General Merrick Garland why his legal team is arguing that he shouldn't be indicted. Donald Trump's lawyers want to meet directly with Attorney General Merrick Garland to ask him to shut down the Justice Department's criminal investigations into the former president. In a statement yesterday, a spokesperson said doing so would, quote, allow the presidential campaign to move forward without interference. Special counsel Jack Smith is investigating the former president's handling of classified documents and his potential efforts to overturn the 2020 election. CNN has reported uh, that Smith appears to be in the final stages of that investigation on the documents and could soon decide whether or not to seek indictments against Trump. So let's go to our Caitlin Poland. She's live in Washington. This is a development from what we talked to you about yesterday. Does the Trump team have any leverage here to actually make this appeal successful? Well, Poppy, they can try to make this appeal successful. They can try to get this meeting with Garland. But we don't know if they're actually going to get a meeting with the attorney general at this point. Um, what they're doing here, it's it's not entirely clear exactly what this is. Is this a legal effort or is this primarily a political effort? But we do know from a team of reporters who've been working on this, we have an understanding now that there are basically three asks that the Trump team wants to make of attorney general Garland. Um, so going over 
the head of the special counsel, Jack Smith, to go to Garland. They want to ask Garland to close the probes that he has enlisted Jack Smith to do into the mishandling of classified documents at Mar-a-Lago, as well as January 6th. Um, We also know that they want to protect Donald Trump's 2024 campaign, that there is uh, this concern that he is in the middle of a campaign season, and perhaps they believe that these investigations need to end uh, so Trump can continue campaigning unaffected. And then also, uh, they want to argue to Garland why he should not be indicted. Um, That is something that often defense attorneys want to do at the end of a case. Um, But in this circumstance, some of our sources were telling us that Jack Smith has not even informed the Trump team at this point that Donald Trump should be expecting uh, to have a decision on whether or not he will be indicted or be informed of it anytime soon. And so what this is, we we just need to see exactly how the Justice Department responds. At this point in time, it's not even clear whether they've received this letter. It was posted on social media. It said it was delivered via courier, but we have not gotten any comment from the Justice Department mm-hmm. yet. Um, and so we're going to have to see exactly if Merrick Garland is going to, to buy into what they want to talk to him about. So, Caitlin, we were trying to track this down yesterday because Trump posted this letter on Truth Social on his website. That seemed to be the first that some people had even seen it. So the Justice Department has not even confirmed that they've received this letter yet. Right. We have no comment from the Justice Department at this time, and it really is unclear whether they have. There's also some CCs there, other people that were supposed to have received this letter. And one of the CCs is just representatives of Congress, an unspecific um, set of names. There's no names there. Usually you will say exactly which House or Senate uh, chairpeople you're you're sending it to. And we haven't heard anyone on the Hill yet who who has said that they have received it. Maybe it's just floating around the halls of Congress. Maybe. (laughs) Thank you, Caitlin. We appreciate the reporting, as always. Also this morning, Target stores are now pulling items from their shelves that they say that they're doing it to protect employees. We'll tell you more. And History Made on Ice highlights of the big win sending the Florida Panthers to the Stanley Cup final. This morning, Target is now the latest company to be facing intense backlash over its support for the LGBTQ community. Target has been celebrating Pride Month for years, but yesterday announced that it is making some last-minute changes to its 2023 collection, namely removing some merchandise from its shelves, citing an anti-LGBTQ campaign that is threatening their workers' safety. It's not clear exactly which products have been pulled, but there are some right-wing critics who are slamming Target for several items that they had, including a swimsuit that was described as tuck-friendly, meaning it's able to conceal male genitalia. Menace information was spreading across social media that it was marketed to children, but it was not, we should be clear. Products that were made by a UK designer who often uses satanic symbols in his designs were also criticized, like this sweatshirt that read Cure Transphobia, not trans people. Let's bring in our CNN business reporter, Nathaniel Meyerson, who's here. Obviously, Nathaniel, we've seen all the backlash that is happening here. Do we know exactly how, okay, well, I guess this is how much Target is pulling. What's in these products that they're taking off the shelves? Right, Caitlin. So every year Target celebrates Pride Month. It has a co- usually a collection of you know T-shirts, mugs, hats, that sort of thing. This year, there are about 2,350 products in the collection. Um, but Target has been the subject of an anti-LGBT campaign, particularly on social media, 
uh, driven by far-right activists, uh, commentators um, in right-wing media, and it's created a hostile work environment for employees. There are videos on social media of people stomping some of the LGBT signs, pulling some of the merchandise. And so Target says that they're going to remove a few items because of out of fear of employee safety and their sense of well-being. And so they're saying essentially that they're concerning those employees have nothing to do with what Target stocks on its shelves. They're worried about their safety. What's the response that you're seeing from these critics? So Target's response isn't pleasing anybody. Supporters of gay rights feel that Target caved to, to far-right extremists. Uh, California Governor Gavin Newsom uh, called out the, the CEO of Target, Brian Cornell, for selling out to the LGBTQ community. Um, Target's move also may alienate younger shoppers who are increasingly supportive of gay and transgender rights. 21% of Gen Z identifies as LGBT, so this could alienate them. Yeah, it certainly could. I mean, and as Governor Newsom was saying, he was saying it's not just a few stores. This is happening, he says, in a systematic fashion. With it, it's not just Target, though. What other stores are being targeted for this as well? So this comes amid a wave of anti-LGBT legislation. The Human Rights Campaign says there have been 70 anti-LGBT bills uh, enacted this year, which is a record. Other brands have been caught in these culture wars over gender identity, sexual orientation. You think of Disney and the so-called don't say gay law in Florida. Um, Disney has been yeah, the Yeah, which sub- is what critics called it. Right. Critics called it the, the don't say gay law. It's been the subject of a, a lot of uh, controversy with Governor Ron DeSantis. Bud Light. We saw Bud Light, just a single Instagram post with the transgender influencer Dylan Mulvaney. Bud Light sales have plunged. Nike also was working with Dylan Mulvaney. They've been the target of criticism. So these brands are really struggling to navigate this incredibly politicized environment driven by social media. Yeah, and we saw Governor DeSantis yesterday defending that feud with Disney as he was launching his presidential campaign. Nathaniel Myerson, thank you for breaking it all down for us this morning. There's a lot there. Poppy, this is going to be so interesting to follow where this goes from here. Thank you, guys. In sports this morning, the Florida Panthers have just made history. The Florida Panthers are heading to the Stanley Cup Final. The eighth-seeded Panthers beat the Carolina Hurricanes 4-3, becoming the first-ever NHL team to enter the postseason as a lowest seed and then sweep a best-of-seven series to earn a berth in the Stanley Cup Final. The engine behind all of it, Matthew Kachuk, the breakout star of the playoffs. No question about that. With the game tied at three in the final seconds, Kachuk rips into the game-winning goal with five seconds to go. The Panthers are headed to the Stanley Cup final for the second time in their history. They will take on either the Vegas Golden Knights or the Dallas Stars. The Golden Knights currently lead the Western Conference Finals 3 to nothing. To basketball now, can the Celtics keep their season alive tonight? In Game 5 in Boston, tip-off against the Miami Heat, who lead the series 3-1, to is at 8.30 p.m. Eastern time tonight on TNT. Can't wait to watch, see what happens. I know you'll be watching closely. Totally. <laughs> All right, also this morning, a veteran at the IRS has now just gone public as the whistleblower in that Hunter Biden criminal probe. The information he claims to have, we'll tell you about it next and also whether or not it's true. Also, our next guest with a warning for all of us. How do we save democracy? David Pepper on his new book is here next. Just 
this week alone, we've seen the power that state governments have. In South Carolina, the Senate there sent a six-week abortion ban to the governor's desk. In Nebraska, the governor there signed a 12-week abortion ban that also restricts gender-affirming care for transgender children. A Florida school removed a poem that was read at President Biden's inauguration from the elementary section of the school library into the middle school section after one complaint from a parent. That was under the state's, quote, Stop Woke Act. All three of those states have government trifectas where the Republican Party holds the governorship and majorities in both chambers of the state legislature. Republicans have 22 of those overall. Democrats have 17. The former chairman of the Ohio Democratic Party, David Pepper, has a new book out called Saving Democracy, a user's manual for every American. In it, he argues that Republicans are stronger at running for lower-level offices, and he uses this analogy to illustrate his point with an assist from his son. They've also learned a really important lesson in their short time playing soccer. Charlie, what is that lesson? The team that's always on offense wins the game. Did you hear that? Oh, hold on. Go, Charlie. Good. The team that is always on offense wins the game. And David joins us now. One, why didn't you bring Charlie? And two, in all seriousness, reading your book, you essentially say, I don't like this idea of an off year, an off election year. It is always election year in your yeah. view. First of all, Charlie is at home watching that. And <laughs> Hi, he's going to be so excited. Hey, we love um, Charlie. Bring him back next yeah, time. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, so, yeah, that's, this is the problem. The, the, the democracy of our country is shaped in states and state houses. That's where the election rules are written. That's where the districts are drawn. And you can either have a, uh, rules and districts that lead to a competitive and representative democracy or one, like in many of the states we're talking about, where it's locked up and the results are guaranteed, one side has been on offense in that place for decades. And the other side, unless something happens to be a swing state for a federal election, really is not in those states. And so that's why I use the analogy with Charlie. Mm -hmm. The team that's always on offense does win the game. And right now, even though Democrats have done well in certain federal elections, even when they win those elections, for the most part, Republicans have locked down state houses. And the reason why all those stories you mentioned are happening is state houses have become unaccountable places. Half of the Tennessee Republicans who kicked out the two Justins mm -hmm. didn't even face opponents in last year's elections. So, of course, they're going to act like they're acting. Every incentive in the world they live in is to be more extreme. And until the other side gets into these places and starts competing, it's going to keep going on just like it is. Your book prior to this one was called Laboratories of Autocracy. And that's how I came to know you making like the play on words of laboratories of democracy. Right. right. But how important states are in the federalist system. But the way that you open this one, I think, is so interesting. You write this in the introduction. And you write, the arc of the moral universe is long, so we think it's going to be the famous MLK quote. But then you say, but it bends in the direction of whoever is pushing it harder for longer is pushing. It's true. I, I worry about that quote. I think Martin Luther King was saying this. The idea that it's just naturally bending in one direction automatically is actually ahistoric. There has always been a fight for democracy he in our country. It eventually bends toward justice. Right, he does. But it doesn't bend that way by itself. The only reason it bent towards justice is because millions of people, and I'm calling on Americans in this book to be among those people, have been pushing and struggling and fighting to bend it against other people who, frankly, were pushing it the other way. That's our country's history. We didn't get our civil rights laws or overcome Jim Crow because it naturally happened. It, became, it came through years of struggle. And right now, my worry has been that we kind of are in this world where we assume democracy is automatically intact. 
that justice is just automatically there. That's not our history. You have to keep pushing for it. And when it's under attack, and it is, in all these states, and we're seeing the consequences as you went through, it looks one way in Florida, another way in North Carolina. In Ohio, they're trying to change the Constitution in crazy and illegal ways. Those are all happening at the same time because at the heart of our democracy are these state houses. They are largely unaccountable, and they can attack democracy over and over again and never be held accountable for doing so. We've got to bring that accountability back. You also send basically a warning shot to corporations saying what's happening to Disney is your future. Yeah. And this is, you know, and I really respect that Disney's fighting back, to be clear. But so many corporations are giving to to politicians in the way they used to. But right now in all these states, they are giving in a way that is lifting autocracy. They are giving in a way that's propping up these extremist systems. And so Disney gave to some of the legislators who then passed the don't say gay bill. And all of a sudden the Disney employees said, what the heck? Why did you give to people who are attacking us? That is the future for all companies that keep giving to the politicians in these laboratories of autocracy. So my advice to companies is avoid that fate. If you're a broad consumer facing company, you're going to always run into this Use your footprint, Disney or Procter & Gamble, anybody, to actually lift democracy. Target's Help. in the spotlight now. Exactly. Example. Target, why don't you register every voter that comes into Target? Register them. If you're in a state with a strict voter ID law, help them figure out how to get that voter ID. These companies have enormous footprints. And rather than putting the money into little autocrats and states, which is what these places are becoming... Put the money into all the ways that help everyday citizens, your employees, your customers, be lifted into our democracy. There have been so many people purged. We'll help get them back on the rolls, target. They could play an enormous role. And that way they're not getting into this back and forth of who they're giving to. They're doing a much broader purpose of lifting democracy. And the book goes through so many specifics of how individual nonprofits and individuals and companies, large and small, can be playing a huge role in lifting democracy. And the importance of local media, by the way, helping that to build up these. We got to go right top of the hour, but but to building up and covering these state houses in in a way that national media just doesn't. One reason state houses have become such a problem is there's so little coverage of them. If you want to do bad stuff, that's where you go to get it done. David, it's a great read, Saving Democracy. It's really accessible, user's manual for every American. Absolutely. Thanks, Thanks, guys. Really appreciate it. Tell Charlie we said hi. Oh, he's going to have a good day. (laughs) CNN This Morning continues right now. Ron DeSantis' big announcement went a little bit south with major glitches. It did break the Twitter space. We're really excited with the enthusiasm. He's dedicated to the proposition that Republicans hate the media. You would want to be with normal people, not a billionaire. Where are they? No social security checks, no paychecks for our troops. Chaos in the world economy. I will not put a bill on the floor that spends more money next year than this year. This is not about cutting wasteful spending for Republicans, and it never has been. This is an unproductive use of political energy. U.S. intelligence is pointing to Ukraine as the likely culprit behind the drone attack on the Kremlin. Whether Zelensky knew about this or not, this gives them a lot of plausible deniability. This is an opportunity for the U.S. government and I think other NATO allies to actually set the record straight. Coming back out in front with it is Kachuk. He scores! Superstars make the big plays at the big times. The Florida Panthers are heading to the Stanley Cup final. We've been an underdog and we're going to continue it to be in the Stanley Cup final. God, it feels good to say that. That's pretty cool. <laughs> You're simply the best. 
certainly music royalty, Tina Turner in her 83 years became pioneer, icon, survivor. Do you realize that you are a feminist hero in America? I'm beginning to. I kind of see it as a gift because of the life I lived. It had a meaning. The world loses a music legend. She's so missed this morning, so missed. Been watching some of the old Larry King interviews with her. We'll show a lot of that this morning. It's so good. That, what she did yeah. for so many on so many levels. Yeah, good morning, everyone. Thanks for joining us. Of course, paying tribute to Tina Turner, the queen of rock and roll. All of this is coming this morning, though, as we are getting some headlines out of Washington as House lawmakers are set to leave town on recess today. But they have not yet clinched a deal on the debt limit, even though there's just one week left before a potentially catastrophic default that could crash the economy. The alarm bell is already ringing this morning as one of the nation's leading credit rating agencies is now warning that it might downgrade the United States rating as House Republicans are digging in and the stalemate is dragging on. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy says there was some progress that was made during yesterday's meeting. You can see the negotiators leaving here. It's on the White House. That was between the White House and the Republican negotiators. But several sticking points remain. You said this week you need to have a deal this week in order to yes. avoid default. Is I still, still believe. I still believe that. Yeah, and, and I, st- I still believe we have time to make an agreement and get it done. Are you calling- still believes there is time, but sources tell CNN's Mani Raju these are some of the demands from House Republicans that are under this intense negotiation. You can see them here, work requirements for food stamps and family assistance. They also want to expedite environmental reviews for energy projects. All of this is coming, of course, as we are waiting to see just how close they get to the brink. Sinan's Christine Romans is here with us. What is the significance of Fitch, Fitch is coming out and saying this about the potential to downgrade the U.S.'s credit rating. Look, there's a big discussion right now if this political brinkmanship, this political intransigence we're seeing is a feature, not a bug. And if it's a feature, not a bug, and we're talking about now 10 years of this kind of behavior, um, I think that there are real questions whether the United States can keep its AAA credit rating, even if they figure this out, because this is a serious problem here. If we keep revisiting this, it makes the U.S. less reliable, it, it, it hurts our prestige, and that eventually can translate into the creditworthiness of, of the debt that we are issuing. So that is a big discussion here. The second discussion that's happening, frankly, is what happens exactly a week from today. That's Janet Yellen's earliest earliest date. Um, at that point, she said yesterday to the um, CNBC CEO council, there's not enough money to pay all the obligations. I think you assume they pay the interest on our debt and they pay any principal payments to investors. But that means Social Security checks will likely not be cut. That means, uh, you know, government contractors could not see payments. We don't know exactly what that's look like. The Treasury Department hasn't said how they'll pick and choose which bills to pay. But right now we are sitting um, in front of only bad choices. That's what we're looking at right now. Only a bunch of really bad choices here. Um, unless by some miracle they were to raise this debt ceiling and continue talking. You know, if they could, if they could make some sort of agreement to continue talking on their philosophical spending differences, um, but raise the debt ceiling, that would be the perfect outcome. And that would need to happen in the next couple of days. Yeah, shows the danger of even just getting this close. Yeah, and I looked at the ba- the bank balance, you guys. We're at seventy six and a half billion today, so, so it went, went up. up. So we took more money in yesterday in Treasury coffers than we spent. That's not expected to last. If you look at you know my cheat sheet here, one hundred and forty billion goes out on June first and June second, and only forty four billion comes in. So now yeah. this is a game of math. This is a game of math, and what what the different federal agencies, what they're spending, whether they can postpone bills legally or not. I mean, what. 
It's yeah, just, but you're still skeptical of the Republicans who are skeptical that June 1 is the real deadline. You seem to think, yeah, we're pretty close to it. Yeah, I mean, Jenny Ellen said June, June 1st is the earliest yeah. possible date. I think that whole week we will be counting every nickel out of the couch cushions to yeah. see if we can stretch another day or two. All right, Kristen Romans, we'll Thank be counting you. with you. Yes, Thank you so much. Will. You're welcome. The 2024 presidential race has expanded by one. If you nominate me, you can set your clock to January 20th, 2025 at high noon, because on the west side of the U.S. Capitol, I will be taking the oath of office as the 47th president of the United States. No excuses. I will get the job done. That is Florida Governor Ron DeSantis on Twitter spaces last night, an audio-only platform, we should note, making the case for why he should be the next leader in the Oval Office. But what was supposed to be his big moment was plagued by delays and glitches. So they just keep crashing, huh? Yeah, I think we've got <laughs> a, just a massive number of people online, so it's um, servers are straining somewhat. All right, sorry about that. We, we've got so many people here that I think we are we are uh, kind of melting the servers, uh, which is a good sign. That was the moderator, David Sachs, saying it's a good sign. I suppose a lot of people were tuned in. Never good to melt the servers. So following that glitch-filled start, we have just learned DeSantis will kick off his campaign again, sort of a relaunch, if you will, next Tuesday in Des Moines, Iowa. He will make stops in New Hampshire and South Carolina next week in what he's calling, quote, our great American comeback tour. Let's bring in a set Hernan, CNN political analyst and national politics reporter with The New York Times, and Kara Swisher, host of On with Kara Swisher, the podcast. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, Seth, I think just to start with you, it's um, a glitch is a glitch, and people will make fun of it and talk about it for a few days. But what, what really matters is, is that indicative of his campaign going yeah. forward? Or yeah, does I'm- Tuesday and Iowa get to be a re- restart? I mean, he's certainly going to hope for that. I mean, I think that there is a kind of piece of theater and substance here on the theater of the presidential launch, which a lot of this is. It's a game for fundraising. It's a game to drive interest. Yeah. He really failed on that front. This kind of took over a moment that was supposed to be about Ron DeSantis and made it about Elon Musk, made it about Twitter, and, and, and also uh, kind of did not execute on the audience that you would want from that front and also kind of trolled the Fox audience that really plays core to the Republican base. You saw the big conservative news sites really kind of call Ron DeSantis out for that decision. It really speaks to a campaign that may be looking more online or maybe looking for, for splashy uh, moments rather than the substance. But on the substance of the, of the presidential launch, which is the thing that's going to last here, we see this as, as a candidate who's not really running to make ideological contrast with Donald Trump. He's running as a real Trump-era conservative, describing a hellish America that needs uh, a kind of intervention of kind of Trump-era politics, that needs the federal government to be able to kind of combat the woke, uh, driven mindset that Ron DeSantis drives everything of his campaign back to. I think when you look at his campaign, it's really adding up to try to, to, try to, add, to, try to look at what I think some people think is a, a, a kind of societal force that went too far in 2020, that the, the, the social programs, the progressive movements that really pushed society, I think, to little to the left in 2020. DeSantis is hoping for a backlash to that. And he's kind of trying to campaignify a a, a real backlash to that moment and hoping that that drives Republican voters to him. Okay, but Kara, I mean, back to the painful Mm -hmm. 25 minutes or so yesterday when everyone was tuning in at six o'clock to listen to this and then you could barely hear. I was kicked out several times trying to be able to listen. I mean, what do you make of the fact, I mean, DeSantis is trying to make the argument he is competence without the chaos, a shot at Trump, but there was obviously a lot of chaos in that announcement yesterday. 
Yeah, I mean, it looked incompetent. And, you know, the medium is the message is the famous quote. Um, and the, the medium here was the message. And that's the problem, I think. Uh, you didn't pay attention to what he was doing. Of course, the media, and especially the conservative media, you know, made hay of it. And of course, that's what would happen. There were no visuals. There was no uh, picture. There was just a lot of stumbling and bumbling. And I'm not, I'm not so sure it will last. I think Estet is right. Um, but it does paint a picture of someone who doesn't make good decisions. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, Elon Musk, as usual, got to be the center of the attention <laughs> rather than Ron DeSantis. I, that, that, that's the problem here is this was about him. But uh, it wasn't about him. It was about Elon and his glitchy Twitter system. Yeah. But Kara, this new CEO of Twitter, uh, Linda Yaccarino, uh, wrote this mm -hmm. about it. Tonight's reflection. We just heard a rare and unscripted conversation on a range of important topics with the presidential candidate all launched on Twitter. That's historical. Let's do more. Freedom of speech is priceless. That was her tweet. You have a long thread on that this morning. Thoughts? I. I, I do. I mean, sure, I guess so, except that's not what happened. And, and he could have issued a press release. It's the same thing. And it wasn't really an interview. You didn't get to know him. There was no illumination. Now, journalists don't have to do every interview at all. But this was so not what's the opposite of skillful. You didn't get any sense of this guy. And he did end up talking about his policy points, but there was nothing that came out of it. Maybe that was his goal. But who was going to stick with it in this sort of janky platform? I think he would have been better off with a lot of visuals, a lot of pictures, a lot of everything else and giving his high points in, in, on all the television networks. Um, I'm not sure he re reached the people he wanted to here. And again, it all became about this janky system and Elon Musk. And mm -hmm. maybe that's what he wants. Maybe he, uh, he's Elon's guy. But boy, did he look like a lapdog to a billionaire. And I don't ever think that's a good look for anybody. Yeah, or Elon looked like he was the leading character, not the candidate yeah. instead. But there, he did do interviews yeah. subsequently yeah. on Fox where he did talk about you know the policy, mm -hmm. and that is going to be what's remembered here ultimately. He talked about how he said he would fire the FBI yeah. director, Chris Wray. He said he would declare a national emergency on immigration. He didn't really answer on Ukraine, which has been yeah. a weaker spot for mm -hmm. him. What did you make of, of that aspect of it? I thought that was really interesting, specifically the Ukraine point. When asked about that, he really made an immediate pivot. He started talking about kind of gender ideology in the, in the military, stepping away from that. I think that speaks to some of the challenges we've seen from DeSantis over the last couple months. But to your point, this is someone who is trying to have both feet in both a MAGA base to speak to the Trump baseline, but also at the same time, try to get folks who may not want Donald Trump because of personality reasons or maybe because they feel like the Trump administration had just too much drama involved. He is not trying to make an ideological contrast with Donald Trump. He's not really trying to, to, to anger Donald Trump supporters. He is really running a campaign that is a stand-in for that message. And if you have a personality difference with him or if you want to see someone who maybe can bring the Republicans along in a, in a way that can help them win, he's trying to say that if you remove the, the hard parts of Donald Trump, the gruff parts of Donald Trump, then you have a candidate that can win. The problem is, for a lot of those Trump supporters, that is what makes Donald Trump appealing. The fact that he will upend the establishment, quote unquote, is what he is promising to the base that he uniquely can do, unlike Ron DeSantis. We had uh, Representative Byron Donalds on our podcast today, The Run Up. And one of the things Byron Donalds said, this is a congressman from Florida, yeah. a young congressman, Republican. Who, a Republican, who is right in the middle of that Ron DeSantis, Donald Trump crosshairs. He says that you can have two, uh, uh, two chefs who make the same recipe, but that doesn't mean the meal tastes the same. 
That is, I think, a good encapsulation of what's bringing some people back to Donald Trump. It's not that they don't like Ron DeSantis. It's that they trust that Donald Trump will deliver on those promises in a different way. And he introduced Ron DeSantis to his inauguration. Yes. Aaron Donalds did. Yes, exactly. I mean, I think that that speaks to really the the two sides. He said he's the best governor of America, but he also said there's no question for him. This primary needs to lead back to Donald Trump. Fascinating. I just wrote myself a note to listen. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you, Estad. Kara, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This morning, tributes are also pouring in for the queen of rock and roll. We don't even need to name her. Tina Turner. The family of the 83-year-old music legend says that she died peacefully at her home in Switzerland after a long illness. With live pictures of fans laying flowers outside her home near Zurich. Throughout her decades-long career, Tina Turner won 12 Grammys. She sold over 100 million records. and She was also inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame not once, twice. Once with her ex-husband, Ike, and then again solo just two years ago. After suffering years of physical abuse and emotional abuse, Tina left Ike and started over with almost nothing. She made her solo comeback a decade later while in her 40s when she released a multi-platinum album that included her hit song, What's Love Got to Do With It? Her life, of course, was made into a movie with the same name as her hit comeback song. Actress Angela Bassett played her, and she shared this tribute on Instagram, writing this. Through her courage in telling her story, her commitment to stay the course in her life, no matter the sacrifice, and her determination to carve out a space in rock and roll for herself and for others who look like her, Tina Turner showed others who lived in fear what a beautiful future filled with love, compassion, and freedom should look like. Here is Tina in her own words. Do you realize that you are a feminist hero in America? Heroine? Your wife just told me that. <laughs> no, do you realize that? I'm beginning to. You see, it wasn't something that I planned. I, I kind of see it as a gift because of the life I lived. It had a meaning. And I think that the meaning was all of what is happening now. I think that if I had not had the If I had not given the story to the world, maybe my life would not be as it is. Later this hour, we're going to be joined by composer and musician Paul Schaefer. He performed with Tina when she was on The Late Show with David Letterman back in 1993. John Fogarty will also join us. He wrote one of Tina Turner's most legendary songs, Proud Mary. That's all ahead. Can't wait to hear from him. Also this morning on the international front, Russia's very outspoken mercenary boss now says he's pulling his troops out of Bakhmut for real this time after declaring victory. We're going to take you live to Ukraine on the ground. We'll get the latest developments. Welcome back. This morning, a new warning from Microsoft that a Chinese state-sponsored group has hacked into critical U.S. infrastructure, including the U.S. territory of Guam. Microsoft says the likely intention of the hacking 
is to, quote, disrupt critical communication infrastructure between the United States and Asia region during future crises. Now, this report just underscores the key role that cyber operations might play if the U.S. needed to respond to any Chinese military attack on Taiwan, since Guam is home to three U.S. military bases. China's Ministry of Foreign Affairs condemned the claim by Microsoft. They called it, quote, a collective disinformation campaign of the Five Eyes Coalition of Countries initiated by the U.S. for geopolitical purposes. Of course, the so-called Five Eyes is the intelligence alliance between the United States, U.K., Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. Also this morning, the chief of Russia's Wagner mercenary group says his fighters are beginning to withdraw from Bakhmut. Of course, he said, said this before, but he now says they are going to start handing over the city to the Russian army and complete their exit by June 1st. Wagner claimed to have captured Bakhmut on Saturday, but Kiev argued with that, saying that they still controlled parts of the city, even if they were small ones. CNN's Fred Pleitkin is live in Ukraine with more. Fred, what are we hearing this morning as, as this is happening? What's the significance of this? Well, it's hugely significant. I mean, this was uh, and continues to be one of the main battlefields in Ukraine that completely annihilated uh, this city. The Ukrainians fighting hard for it. Obviously, the Russians poured immense resources into this as well, specifically uh, this Wagner private uh, military company. And, you know, this morning there was a video that was released by Yevgeny Prigozhin, the head of the Wagner private military company, going through essentially the ruins of that town. It's been completely annihilated and telling his fighters to go and pack up their things because they are leaving. He says that they are going to go to the rear echelon. They are going to rest and regroup there and wait for new orders, as they put it. Let's listen to some of what he had to say. We are withdrawing the units from Bakhmut. It's 5 a.m. on May 25th. By June 1st, the main part will be relocated to the rear camps. We are transferring positions to the military. The ammo positions, everything, including dry rations. Now, Caitlin, we also reached out to the Ukrainian command for the Eastern Front, and they said at this point in time they cannot confirm that Wagner is really withdrawing from that area. However, they do note that attacks in that area have decreased significantly over the past couple of days, so that could be an indication that that is really happening, Caitlin. Yeah, and we'll continue to see what the U.S. says about that as well. Fred Pleitgen, live in Ukraine. Thank you so much. Well, this morning, Italy's art theft police squad is arresting 21 of 51 suspects. That's right. In an international art trafficking blitz, the operation included 50 searches and 300 officers. Look at that. This all took place in southern Italy and recovered more than 3,000 pieces of historical, artistic, and commercial value art. Some of the most valuable pieces include hundreds of bronze and silver coins, archaeological coins, and also jewelry. And many of these artifacts were taken by grave robbers and trafficked across Italy to international art collectors. Also overnight, the ratings agency known as Fitch is now warning the U.S. could lose its AAA credit rating if lawmakers in Washington do not strike a deal on the debt ceiling. Right now, they don't seem like they're that close. We're going to talk to the chair of the Progressive Caucus, Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, about where she sees things this morning. And later, a remarkable medical breakthrough, the new technology that allowed a man to walk for the first time in more than a decade. We have his story ahead. You know the challenge here, Democrats continue to want to spend more. I've been very clear, I will not put a bill on the floor that spends more money next year than this year. For starters, this is a manufactured crisis. 
plain and simple. Let's be clear, this is not about cutting wasteful spending for Republicans and it never has been. Senior Republican sources tell CNN this morning that the prospects for raising the debt limit by June 1st, one week from today, are grim, though House Speaker Kevin McCarthy says there's progress. The two sides, though, we know, still very, very far apart on any deal. The negotiations will continue today. Pressure is only intensifying, as I said, one week away from a potential default. And even getting close to it would likely trigger a global economic catastrophe. Joining us now is Democratic Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal of Washington. She is the chair of the House Progressive Caucus. Good morning, Congresswoman. Good morning, Poppy. I thought it was striking that your Republican colleague, uh, Congressman Patrick McHenry, who has, by the way, been very complimentary of Janet Yellen, saying listen to her on this deadline, that he told Punchbowl News he's not optimistic that there will be a deal in time. He also said, quote, we are, in my view, past what is a reasonable deadline. And that's why when the speaker said, let's figure it out in February, he meant it. Are you as concerned as he is that we are past a reasonable deadline already? Well, I am concerned, Poppy, and I think that if we default, if we come close to default, there is only one person to blame, and it's Speaker McCarthy. Um, You know, he says uh, Speaker McCarthy wanted to talk back in February, but don't forget that it wasn't until the end of April that the Republicans even passed a bill off the floor. And let's not be fooled into thinking that that was a budget. It was not a budget. Um, In fact, they've pulled back all of their appropriations bills this week because there is no way to square for the American people what they're saying uh, in terms of they want to increase Pentagon spending. They want to hold veterans harmless even as they are pulling money away from veterans for the burn pit fund, which, you know, helps people who were injured in war. Um, And if you do all of that, Poppy, there's no way to not have significant cuts to health care, to school and education, to people's Mm -hmm. child care, Social Security. All of these things will be affected. And they don't want people to know that. But that's what would happen. Cuts of between 20 and 30 percent to all of these different categories that people rely on. Congresswoman, you say there would be only one person to blame if there's no deal, and that's Kevin McCarthy, but not even all of your Democratic colleagues in Congress feel that way. And I'm quoting Democratic Representative Richie Torres, who told CNN, he told Armanu Raju yesterday that the Democratic Party really miscalculated here. And he said that they should have done this unilaterally when Democrats controlled both chambers back in December. Our reporting is that you actually spoke with then House Speaker Pelosi about doing that. Is that right? And is he right? Well, that's correct. And uh, we did, uh, I did speak to the speaker at the time, and we actually put it out on our um, important executive actions to uh, take place or lame duck session actions to take place back in the late fall. Um, you know, I think the challenge at the time was that we would need 50 Democrats in the Senate to do that. And so I understand there were concerns. I don't think we, uh, you know, we tried hard enough um, to make mm. sure we got that done. At the same time, I still don't think that that negates where the blame lies for this. Because don't forget, Poppy, we've raised the debt ceiling 78 times uh, in, in recent history. And we Democrats did it three times under Donald Trump, even though mm-hmm. that was at the same time that so- Donald Trump and Republicans passed $7.8 trillion uh, additional uh, that, that was added to the deficit. CNN has a new poll out. I'm sure you've seen it uh, in just the last two days. And what it shows really interestingly is that 60 percent of Americans say Congress should only 
raise the debt ceiling if it comes with spending cuts at the same time. And that includes 58 percent of independents. Is your position out of step now, Congresswoman, with the majority of the American people? I'm so glad you raised that poll because I think it's really important to look at what that poll says. If you just say to people, should we cut spending? They will probably say yes. Um, However, if you say, would you rather cut spending and reduce the deficit by cutting the tax breaks to the wealthiest corporations and wealthiest individuals, or would you like to cut your own health care, education, uh, you know, care for veterans, etc. I guarantee you that you would have even higher numbers that say, let's make sure that but, we're making the wealthy pay their fair share. That's not and what that's the, the other thing we've been saying to the Republicans. That's not what the poll says. This is the exact question that was asked of voters. What should Congress do on the debt ceiling? Raise only if spending cut, 60%. Raise no matter what, 24%. Not raise, let U.S. default, 15%. But, these, are, these are what they are saying to this critical question. Yeah, but, Go ahead. No, I understand. But, Poppy, you can't take tax cuts out of spending. You know, tax cuts for the wealthiest are spending. Don't think that that isn't spending. When under Donald Trump, um, they added almost $2 trillion to the deficit because they gave tax cuts to the wealthiest. That is spending. And I think the American people understand that that's what needs to change, is we need to roll back those tax cuts, and we need to actually make sure that we are reducing the deficit by making the wealthiest pay their fair share, very, not by cutting working people's benefits. Very well aware of what those 2017 tax cuts did. And to your point, you pointed out yesterday the policies proposed by the White House and all of this that the Republicans have rejected, which included ending some of those tax cuts, oil subsidies, et cetera. Let me just end on this, because you've been a big voice in, in the Progressive Caucus has in urging the Biden administration to invoke the 14th Amendment here, to essentially ignore the debt limit raise it, saying, look, they have that constitutional authority. Janet Yellen has said that's legally questionable. The Biden administration has viewed it as problematic just with the time frame we're in. And I thought it was interesting that Senate Majority Whip Dick Durbin warned, quote, inserting it into the process now tosses this into the courts and God knows where it ends. And then Republican Senator John Cornyn said it's a way to avoid responsibility, which I think is basically saying, isn't it your job as Congress to do hard things, make hard decisions like this? Yeah, absolutely. It is our job. It's our constitutional obligation to raise the debt ceiling, which Republicans are refusing to do. So again, let's make it clear that anyone uh, who thinks that this is normal, it's not normal. Republicans are using this as a hostage-taking move because they couldn't get these cuts that they're trying to get in during the regular negotiations and appropriations session. I think the American people have to understand that that is what is happening. So, you know, Is it our preference to use the 14th Amendment? Of course not. We think Republicans should raise the debt ceiling. That can happen today, Poppy, if five Republicans who are responsible to their constitutional obligation get out there and sign the discharge petition for a clean debt ceiling raise with Democrats. So I don't want to use the 14th Amendment. But what I am saying is that if it's a choice between a catastrophic deal for the American people, either through default or through these awful spending cuts, then I think the president would have to go to using his unilateral authority to raise the debt ceiling. Congresswoman uh, Pamela Jabhal, thank you. It's good to have your voice in this conversation. I appreciate you joining us. Thank you, Poppy. Great to be with you. Thanks. And we'll see what the White House says about that. They've been pushing back on those unilateral options. We'll see if that's something they're willing to pursue. 
Also this morning in Washington, the IRS whistleblower who said that there was political interference in the probe of Hunter Biden is now speaking out publicly. And weight loss drugs like Ozempic, you've heard a lot about that, right? Well, now they could be a whole lot more accessible. We'll tell you why after this. This morning, a 14-year veteran of the IRS is surveilling himself as the whistleblower who claims there was political interference surrounding that probe into Hunter Biden's finances. Gary Shapley was recently removed from the Justice Department investigation. This is what he told CBS. There was multiple steps that were were slow walked at the uh, direction of, of the Department of Justice. Had you ever encountered that before? I have not, no. CNN's Evan Perez joins us now. Evan, one, what's the extent of his allegations? And two, what is the IRS saying about all of this? Well, the uh, extent of the allegations are still uh, pretty minimal. We don't know exactly what uh, specific allegations of wrongdoing uh, this whistleblower is making because he hasn't even yet met with uh, the, the, the congressional committees that are doing this investigation. Um, we know publicly now for the first time his name, Gary Shapley. We know that uh, he has some concerns that date back to 2020. Now, this would be during the uh, Trump administration where he said he started noticing that there were deviations from the normal course uh, of the way these types of investigations are done. We know that uh, he believes that, uh, there were, uh, he, that there were some political or some partisan uh, interference here by someone beginning in 2020, but also continued into the Biden administration. And, and you know, not a lot of specifics in what he's saying, but he does describe this uh, October 2022 meeting where he says everything came to a head. He and other investigators were very frustrated and believed that there were things being done that were, again, being done for partisan reasons. Now, we expect that he's going to meet with the House investigators on the, the, the investigators on the House side, Republicans uh, and Democrats, uh, on Friday. And then he's going to also meet with Senate investigators, again, to describe what he says is some politi- political interference in this investigation. The IRS, by, for its part, says that he, they've made sure that uh, this whistleblower's uh, complaints are being investigated by its inspector general. And they say that they There's been nothing done on the IRS side, especially to interfere with what he's saying. All right, Evan Perez, thank you. Thanks. Well, this morning, a remarkable medical breakthrough. A man is now walking more than a decade after suffering a paralyzing spinal cord injury. 40-year-old Gert Jan Oskem was injured in a motorcycle accident more than a decade ago. It prevented him from taking a single step. But now doctors in Switzerland have helped him regain his ability to walk through his thoughts. Two years ago, I got in contact with a team of scientists in Switzerland, and then I could participate in a clinical trial for a uh, brain-spine interface where they uh, put implants in my uh, brain and in my back to, to learn to walk again. Amazing. Here's how it works. The implants in the brain track intentions for movements, right? What he's thinking about moving, those are wirelessly transferred to a processing unit that a person wears externally, like a backpack. You saw him wearing it there. He says he can now walk about the length of a football field and stand without using his hands for a few minutes. He's even attempting to get up and down stairs on his own. And tomorrow, he and his doctor will join us live right here on CNN This Morning.
Can't wait to watch that interview. Also this morning, there is a big change that could soon be coming to a very popular weight loss drug that's on the market. Instead of a once a week injections of drugs like Ozempic or Wagovi, people may be eventually able to just take a pill instead. Joining us now with more on this is CNN's medical correspondent, Meg Terrell. Uh, this would be huge for a lot of people who don't want to have to do those injections on a weekly basis. Yeah, right now you've got to give these to yourselves once a week as shots. And so we've seen in results actually just published this week, both from Pfizer and from Novo Nordisk, Novo, of course, makes Wagovi and Ozempic, that they have pill versions of this. And so far in trials, the results look similar when it comes to weight loss, up to 15% of body weight over more than a year of taking this. Um, and so these are still in trials right now. They're uh, at least the Novo one. They plan to file for FDA approval this year, potentially. Mm -hmm. Pfizer's going to choose which compound of two it's going to take into phase three next year. Eli Lilly also has one of these. This could really change the way people look at taking these medicines. What about the side effects? That's been one of the big questions of Ozempic. Is it worth it for people because of some of the side effects that people endure? Any difference in side effects from pills? Nope, they're basically the same. Whereas the efficacy looks the same, some of these side effects are the same too. And they're things like nausea and vomiting. And so when you're taking these injections, you actually start with lower doses and you move up over uh -huh. time so that you can try to tolerate these drugs better. Doctors do say about 5 to 10% of patients really can't tolerate these side effects and don't take them. If there was a pill, they say maybe the titration, that gradual increase could be managed a little better and maybe that could lessen some of these side effects a bit. And the two names that I mentioned, Ozempic and Wagovi, are pretty well known. I feel like we've talked about them so much on this program. Is there another one, though, that is about to enter the market, I believe? There is. So Eli Lilly has one already approved for type 2 diabetes called Mounjaro. That same compound right. they're waiting on FDA approval for in obesity. But even beyond that, we are seeing a huge pipeline full of drugs, you know, two dozen orals, more that are trying to increase the weight loss. So we're going to see a lot more coming. We'll follow it. This is really fascinating. Meg, thank you for the reporting. Thanks, Meg. So we're just a few days from Memorial Day, and our very own Jake Tapper is live for us at the National Mall with a group of veterans. Jake, tell us what's happening this morning. Poppy, I'm here uh, with a bipartisan group of members of Congress, Democrats and Republicans, all of them veterans. And we're here right near the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. Uh, and they are about to do an annual tradition, which is before the Memorial Day weekend, they're going to go to the Vietnam Veterans Memorial and they are going to wash the Vietnam Veterans Memorial as a way of honoring those whom we lost right before Memorial Day. She was simply the best showstopper, pop sensation, and to so many, just the best there was. This morning, people around the world are mourning the death of the queen of rock and roll, Tina Turner. Through a decades-long career, she won 12 Grammys, sold over 100 million records, and was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame not once, but twice. Her family says she died peacefully at her home in Switzerland after a long illness. And here's a look back at her remarkable life. I just did what I wanted to do and what I felt like doing. That's my style. I take great songs and turn them into rock and roll songs on stage. My performance is an energy on stage. The crowd, the music, all the whole atmosphere gets me going. Welcome to another edition of Thunderdome! It took a long time to get to Hollywood. Turner. Oh, what's love got 
I had had a lot of violence. Houses burned, cars shot into, like, the lowest that you can think of in terms of violence. But I felt that getting it out would be not suppressing it anymore, letting the world really know. Well, I think you're asking me if I had a word of advice to the upcomers, right? I think I can say if, if they plan to make a life of their career, they will start to be patient and um, have a very strong tenacity and endurance because the business is attractive but very hard. I can't think of anything else that I want to do because it's all done now. Joining us now, the musician and former band leader of The Late Show with David Letterman, Paul Schaefer, and of course, John Fogarty, who wrote one of Turner's most legendary songs, Proud Mary, and is proud to have had her perform it. I know, thank you both so much for being here. Paul, I was just watching you as we were seeing that tribute of her, hearing those songs. I wonder what you're feeling this morning. Oh my goodness, a tremendous loss. That's all I can say. This is a major loss to the creative artistic community. What more can you say? I mean, it's so significant what she represented for so many ways, sociologically and of course, musically, that I'm just, and I thought she would live forever. I never thought we would see this day. She was, Im she was immortal, was she not? Yeah, she really, really was, Paul. John, the song, Proud Mary, your song, your words, your creation, and you tweeted after her passing that you loved her version of Proud Mary so much and the fact that she chose it for her breakthrough record. I wonder what it was like for you when you heard her perform it for the first time. Oh, well, um, over the top, Tina was the best, and I've been rooting for her for years before uh, she recorded Proud Mary and was lucky enough to tour with her uh, with my band Credence uh, back in uh, about 1970, I believe it was, 70, 72 perhaps. Uh, anyway, uh, she was amazing on stage and uh, I was so proud that, she, that basically Proud Mary was the song that catapulted her from sort of in the middle of rock and roll to the very heights of pop music. Uh, at that time, and uh, I was just thrilled that she had finally become a household name, you know. Yeah, yeah of course. That was seen as a song that, that kind of helped revive her, I think is the way she described it. And Paul, you know, John mentioned her, electri her electrifying stage presence. I mean, that is so much of her legacy. We were talking earlier about, you know, her adversity and her personal life, but it was also just the way she was on stage and to see how she made people in the crowd feel. She was like a, like a hurricane, like a tornado, like a dynamo. Uh, no one had ever seen anything like it. Uh, she, as far as performers, I mean, you look back in history and you think about Sammy Davis Jr., for instance, known as the greatest, you know, T Tina Turner uh, takes her place in that pantheon. If you ever saw her, and I got to see her when I was in college, I saw her in a club with Ike uh, in the Elma Combo, Toronto. I never, she levitated, the whole band really levitated under her direction and, and control, even though Ike was supposedly un, you know, in control. She was flying that airplane and like I'd never seen it before. John, what is also remarkable that Caitlin and I've been talking about all morning is the fact that she overcame so much in her 
private life and her marriage, all of that emotional and physical abuse for 16 years that the public largely didn't know about until she finally came out and talked about it. But the fact that she was able to achieve all of this and be all of that on stage to everyone while enduring this at home, I just wonder your thoughts on that. Well, I think actually the stage is the place that you live for mm. when you're in a situation like that. You take uh, you take all the abuse, um, I guess, because you're forced to, but you're free when you get out on stage, and yeah. it's just you and your audience and the music. Uh, I know she was absolutely the, the best. Uh, Paul said levitate. <laughs> I think that's really true. It's unstoppable energy. I remember um, after she had recorded Proud Mary, I mean, for just years and years, we saw her on TV performing in that red dress with the uh, girls in the background singing Roll River. Uh, just a very iconic moment in rock and roll. It's completely iconic. Paul, I wonder, of all the people you played with, is she one of your favorites? No question about it. Uh, and I got to play for her a number of times, most notably that time she did David Letterman show in the 90s. And she did a song called I Don't Really Want to Fight No More. And um, her great manager, Roger Davies, was with her right down in there in the trenches with us. And, uh, you know, I got to be in her band for a second. And I'm telling you, when I thought back and remembered seeing her on American Bandstand with Dick Clark, doing a fool in love in about 1960, I don't know what, 69. I didn't even understand it then. It was so complex. Now I realize it was like Ornette Coleman. It was so complex and avant-garde, her sound. And then getting to work with her, unbelievable. I can only imagine with John Fogarty what he feels like when he hears how she takes it slow first, nice and easy, and then she takes his song and does it nice and rough. Oh my goodness. We all fell over when we heard that. What about you, John? Absolutely. The first time I heard it on the radio, I was just full of joy and, and pride, I guess you'd say, that she had chosen my song. And the fact that it was so different in the way I did it, you know, and she turned it into a little movement, a little mini opera, I suppose. And I liked both ways, uh, you know, the slow and the fast. Uh, what a concept. It was an incredible record. It was amazing. It's just iconic. It's overused, but she truly was. Thank you both so much for bringing us that view of her that, you know, we we didn't experience what you did. Our viewers didn't experience what you did. So real gift that you had that time with her. Thank you both. Thank you. Great pleasure to be here. An honor really to be speaking about Tina this morning. Mm. I know John feels the same way. Thank you. All right. Thanks, gentlemen. CNN This Morning continues right now. All right, sorry about that. We, we've got so many people here that I think we are, we are uh, kind of melting the servers, uh, which is a good sign. Is it? I don't want to jinx us, but we've made it on air all three hours this morning, and I feel like... We still have an hour to go. Yeah. <laughs> it's a pretty good sign. Not sure meltdown is a good sign, but look, that is about how Ron DeSantis launched his campaign. Good morning, everyone, to this hour of CNN This Morning. Presidential candidate Ron DeSantis pushing the reset button on his presidential campaign. He just announced a new campaign kickoff in Iowa. That comes after his much-hyped 
launch on Twitter with Elon Musk was derailed by technical difficulties. Also, lawmakers in the House going on recess as time is running out to reach a deal on the debt limit and prevent an economic disaster. There's a new warning this morning about what could happen in just the days to come. And the leader and members of Oath Keepers, that militia group, are about to learn their fates. A judge is about to sentence them today for their conviction on seditious conspiracy. This hour of CNN This Morning starts right now. Here is where we begin this morning. Ron DeSantis planning a redo after his campaign launch went awry on Twitter. Watch. So they just keep crashing, huh? Yeah, I think we've got <laughs> a, just a massive number of people online, so it's um, serves as training somewhat. After lots of hype, his live stream announcement with Elon Musk was full of technical challenges. The audio kept cutting out. The headlines were brutal this morning, and the hashtag disaster was trending last night. Yeah, it took about 25 minutes or so before he was actually able to do that launch. Just a short time ago, his campaign announced that he will be doing another campaign kickoff, this time in person in Des Moines, Iowa, on Tuesday. Not on Twitter Spaces, which is where all of those glitches happened last night in that audio-only event. Then the day after that, he is going to crisscross Iowa before heading to New Hampshire on Thursday and South Carolina on Friday. Let's bring in Philip Bump, national correspondent for The Washington Post, and our very own Abby Phillips, CNN senior political correspondent and the anchor of Inside Politics Sunday. Good morning, guys. Hey, morning. Abby, everyone's going to talk about the technical <laughs> glitch, but that's like a day or two-day yeah. story. The real question is... What does this mean for his campaign? What will Iowa look like? And is the glitch just a one-day thing, or is this a sign, an ominous sign for yeah. what's ahead for him? That, that's where I'm at at this point. I mean, I think the glitch was predictable. It was bad. I think we can say that. There's no spin that can spin this as breaking the Internet. It just didn't work, and there wasn't that many people that it should have been broken. But what I'm thinking about is what does it say about his campaign and its decision-making processes, how they think about what they need to do in this race, uh, and whether they're, will, they're able to recover from this and learn from it, because they're going to have to do that very, very quickly. They're jumping into a race where they're not going, af- they're, they're not going up against other candidates who are similarly situated, where they're, uh, you know, the other candidates in the race are not all introducing themselves to the public for the first time, they're going after one of the most well-known people on the planet, Donald Trump, who was the president once. And so this is, you know, zero, you know, fail ball here. Like, you cannot mess this up repeatedly at the beginning. And I think that that's what this is about. I have some questions also about whether his message really got through last night. And is his campaign thinking about how effective he needs to be at selling himself to the American people at this moment. Well, and to that point, if you once you could listen to the announcement last night, the one that happened on Twitter spaces first, there wasn't a lot of talk about inflation or matters like that. They were talking about crypto. They were talking about things that don't rate in you know, the top three things that voters care about, which is unusual for a presidential campaign launch. But the idea that he chose to do it on Twitter, they wanted to get this buzz. They're making the argument that they are the competence without the chaos shot at Trump, and then he already has a chaotic start, and now they're having to do a relaunch on Tuesday. That's not a good sign for a start of the campaign. 
Yeah, exactly right. And that's the key point, right? He is pitching himself. I'm the competent leader. I'm the normal guy. I can do this in a way that Donald Trump, who's so erratic and chaotic, can't. And then he comes out of the gates with it. And to Abby's point, yes, it was Twitter's fault. It didn't work. But everyone has seen what has happened with Twitter over the course of the past six months, and they could have predicted it. And to your point, yes, the conversation that they then had was driven by Musk and Musk's allies about issues that Musk cared about and not about what DeSantis ought to have been talking about. And people should remember, this is, we used to talk about the lanes in the Republican primary. There's two lanes now. There's the Trump lane and there's the not Trump lane. Ron DeSantis is leading in the not Trump lane. But there's only one Trump. Trump's going to stay in the Trump lane. DeSantis is sort of coasting behind him there. There's 330 million people in America who can be the not Trump candidate. And so if you come out of the gates and you're the guy who everyone is saying, OK, this is the guy who can be Trump and that's your launch, that's that's potentially pretty damaging. Let's listen to this sound, what he said, not just on Twitter when the audio did work, but also on Fox, on this radio interview about executive power and Article two of the Constitution. Here he was. I understand the different leverage points that you would have under Article Two of the Constitution. We have a bureaucracy that's totally out of control. You need to be willing to use Article Two power uh, to bring the administrative state to heel. I will do that. You also have to be willing to assert the true scope of Article Two powers. And I think a lot of our presidents have not been willing to do that. Abby, what did you make of that? I mean, I guess considering also included in Article Two, is it, you know, advice and consent of the Senate. Yeah, well, that's exactly what I was going to say. I mean, first of all, it's not the first time that we've heard repeatedly about Article 2. This was actually something that a lot of Trump allies who came in with him, uh, who were kind of working on the quote-unquote administrative state, realized uh, that they needed to uh, figure out how to make the executive more powerful. Some of those people, I think, are in the DeSantis brain brain trust in terms of how he thinks about the federal government. I think that's all good and well, but, you know, DeSantis is, first of all, running his campaign on something that is really the domain of Washington, D.C. think tanks. And I think that it needs to be translated for real people. And then secondly, he's also a governor who has had the pleasure of governing under pretty much one party control in a state. He's never had to deal with an oppositional Senate and an oppositional House and uh, a vast, expansive federal bureaucracy. So I think the rhetoric is totally fine. It's not surprising. There's a huge wing of the conservative right wing that this is a huge focus. But again, this campaign is going to be fought on the basis of what is important to real people. And I think that is going to be, that's a next level thing that does not really have a lot of resonance for people living their day-to-day lives. Yeah, and he talked about immigration. He talked about firing the FBI director on day one. He also, how do you think he handled Trump? Because that's, of course, his biggest challenge, obviously. He is still the most formidable challenger to Trump, despite the glitches and whatnot. He's got a lot of name ID. He is established from his time as governor. He's got a lot of money. And he was making arguments last night, taking shots at Trump, saying, I think we should debate making comments like that. Sure. Yeah. I mean, yes, he is still the most formidable opponent to Donald Trump. But he was about 15 points behind the beginning of March, according to 538's average. And now Trump's up on him two to one. Right. He needs to reverse that trend. And I don't know how last night is going to do that, particularly because he wasn't particularly forceful in going after Trump. I mean, CNN had a pullout yesterday that shows that two thirds of Republicans think the 2020 election was stolen. 
Are you going to be able to convince those Republicans, oh, Donald Trump's a loser? Are you going to be able to convince them Donald Trump's a loser is going to lose elections when you're down two to one in the polls against Donald Trump? Like, that's the problem that he has. And to the point about, you know, Ron DeSantis' sort of personal, uh, his, his persona, if you will, like, there's nothing about Ron DeSantis, particularly that came through last night, that's going to have Republicans who really like Donald Trump sort of the way he is and the way he throws punches. I don't think Ron DeSantis is going to be able to overcome that particularly if he's doing events well, like he did last This time. is why next week is going to be really critical. Right. I mean, he's got to get out of Florida, get on the ground, and really start engaging. But the engagement isn't just about the interpersonal stuff. I mean, the headlines at the local level really matter. This week was a missed opportunity. He could have had a raft of positive headlines out of this. Fine. Next week is his next opportunity to reset the narrative. And it's going to have to be reset, not just in the interpersonal interactions and diners and whatnot, but in how he manages uh, the, the overall ethos of, of this first week. Is he competent? Is it going smoothly? Uh, is he, you know, making people feel something? I mean, I, this is the thing about Donald Trump. You may not like him, but he makes people feel, on the Republican side, feel very excited. Ron DeSantis needs to engender that same kind of thing if he's going to beat Trump. Abby Phillips, thank you both very much. Nice to have you. Phillips in the house this morning. A lot morning. of Phillips. <laughs> <laughs> thank you both. All right, just over an hour from now, the militia leader, Stuart Rhodes, is going to be the first of several Oath Keepers to be sentenced after he was convicted of seditious conspiracy for the role he played on January 6th. Prosecutors are asking for a 25-year prison sentence, and multiple law enforcement officers and two U.S. Capitol staff members stood before a federal judge in Washington yesterday we're counting their terror as a mob breached the Capitol, as you can see here on January 6th. CNN's Caitlin Polentz is tracking this. Uh, Caitlin, I think the most significant thing here is how these charges differ and what the sentences could look like and how they could be different from other people who have been sentenced and charged with January 6th. Right. Well, Caitlin, whenever we look back, there are hundreds of Capitol riot defendants, many of whom have been sentenced already, many of whom have served their time because many of them received relatively short sentences or even sentences that didn't require them to go to prison. Only one person has gotten a sentence of over 10 years, as far as we can tell so far in these cases. But these guys, they're different. And the Justice Department says that to the judge. This is the first group of people who are set to be sentenced for that seditious conspiracy charge, that idea that they have been convicted by a jury for wanting to, by force, block the U.S. government or wage a war. And the Justice Department doesn't pull any punches whenever they're arguing to the judge already on paper. They do quote um, somebody who took the stand at their trial and called them a traitor. That is how they start their argument. They say these people are traitors. Uh, and then they say that these defendants are unlike any of the hundreds of other defendants who have been sentenced for their roles in the attack. So they're asking for 25 years for Stuart Rhodes. There's another man, Kelly Meggs, an Oath Keeper, who's being sentenced. The Justice Department is asking for 21 years for him. That is quite large, quite significant. We'll see if the judge is going to do that. But already the judge is looking at this case and spent a lot of time yesterday factoring into a lot of the things, legal and both uh, the personal impact that this case, that these men and what they are convicted of doing, how it affected people. And those two people, that there were testify testimony from many different people who were victims. Two of them um, said, our Metropolitan Police officers testified yesterday saying they chose to be part of a group that surrounded us, taunted us. My physical scars, bruises and wounds have healed, mm -hmm. but my mental trauma haunts me to this day. And then another U.S. Capitol Police agent 
said the violence that the rioters brought to the Capitol never ended for many of us. The trauma had reached into our homes, our personal lives and our loved ones. And so that is what the judge has heard going into this sentencing today and is something that he will be considering as he makes these decisions. Yeah. Powerful words from Christopher Owens and David Lazarus there. Caitlin Polentz, thank you. Also this morning, there is new U.S. intelligence that it may have been a Ukrainian group that was responsible for that Kremlin drone attack that we covered. You can see that happened here in the middle of the night. Putin was not at the Kremlin. So far, though, they have not reached a definitive conclusion. But what does this mean for the future of the war? And here in the U.S., we'll go live back to the National Mall where you saw Jake Tapper. And he's there with a bipartisan group of lawmakers as they mark Memorial Day ahead. In Texas, a battle that is is escalating between the state's Republican attorney general, his well-known Ken Paxton, and the Republican-controlled House. It's a rare division between a party. And Wednesday, a House ethics panel heard explosive testimony from investigators detailing what they described and claimed was years of misconduct by the attorney general. But just a day before that, Paxton himself was accusing the Texas House speaker, Dade Phelan, of being drunk as he was conducting official House business. CNN's Rosa Flores is live in Houston with the latest. I mean, Rosa, this is just I'm fascinated by this story and what's happening here and to see these divisions emerging. And I think the questions that some people would have are, are those allegations that we heard from Paxton related to this investigation and the allegations against him? You know, Caitlin, there is so much to unpack here. In a nutshell, this is a window into Texas politics. And yes, there's a lot of inside baseball. And you know that the Republicans are in control here in Texas. But there are different factions. There are battles for power. And this one is out there for the world to see. A Texas-sized brawl between two of the most powerful Republicans in the Lone Star State. Texas House Speaker Dade Phelan and Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton exploding after this clip went viral. Is there objection to the opposite amendment? The chair has none. Members adopted. Phelan appearing to slur his words last Friday during official House business. Send the amendment is acceptable. The mumbling coming at the end of a 13-hour day and sparking a slew of tweets by the state's top law enforcement officer. First, calling for his fellow Republican to resign for, quote, apparent debilitating intoxication, though presenting no evidence. Then, asking the House Investigations Committee to open an inquiry into the speaker for presiding in an obviously intoxicated state, again, presenting no evidence. Democrat House member Terry Canales defending Phelan, saying, I had multiple interactions with the speaker throughout the day and that night, and I can say unequivocally he was not under the influence. If it was something else or it was just that he was tired, then it definitely makes Ken Paxson look like a bully. Phelan fighting back through a spokesperson saying, Mr. Paxton's statement today amounts to little more than a last-ditch effort to save face about this. The committee will meet in a public hearing. The Texas House General Investigating Committee, a panel that looks into corruption with the power to initiate impeachment proceedings, issuing a letter to Paxton demanding preservation of documents and saying, quote, the House is conducting an investigation related to your request for $3.3 million of public money to pay a settlement resolving litigation between your agency and terminated whistleblowers. 
Each was fired after reporting General Paxton to law enforcement. The public hearing Wednesday lasted more than three hours. And you said of nearly every single person that your team interviewed as part of this process, that nearly every single person expressed fear and concern about retaliation from Ken Paxton. The testimony by a group of attorneys, stunning. That is absolutely accurate. Thank you. Describing Paxton's alleged misconduct related to a whistleblower lawsuit he settled in February, obligating Texas taxpayers, not Paxton, to pay the $3.3 million settlement. As part of the settlement, the Texas AG issued an apology, but that does not constitute admission of liability. This definitely looks like Ken Paxton trying to deflect his own problems onto the Speaker of the House. After the hearing, the mudslinging continued. Paxton calling the House Speaker the L-word, saying Phelan is a, quote, liberal, that it's not surprising that a committee appointed by him would seek to disenfranchise Texas voters and sabotage my work as Attorney General and that every allegation is easily disproved. Phelan's communications director firing back, saying the attorney general appears to have routinely abused his powers for personal gain and exhibited blatant disregard for the ethical and legal propriety expected of the state's leading law enforcement officer. Now, amid all of these allegations and investigations, including the one by the Texas House, which asked the Texas Attorney General to preserve documents, there's this. Take a look at this video. This is a dumpster fire at the Texas AG's office happening yesterday. This video first started circulating on Twitter. Then the Texas AG's office also tweeted it from its official account. And we contacted the fire department in Austin. And they say that they responded. They were there for a few minutes. They are investigating. Now there's an open investigation into this dumpster fire. Caitlin and Poppy, so a lot there. We're going to continue monitoring, to say the least. I mean, a literal, literal dumpster fire. Figure. <laughs> Words aren't even needed, Rosa Flores. Thank you for that. So coming up, we're going to take you live to the National Mall this morning, just a few days ahead of Memorial Day. Our very own Jake Tapper is with a bipartisan group of lawmakers. We will show you how they're choosing to honor our nation's heroes. Memorial Day is only a few days away, and a bipartisan group of lawmakers are gathering right now to honor our nation's veterans. They have come together to hand wash. Look what they're doing. They're hand washing the Vietnam Veterans Memorial that lists the names of the more than 58,000 lives lost in that war. And our Jake Tapper, CNN chief washing correspondent and anchor of the lead in the State of the Union, is there with him because you are always there for things that honor our veterans, Jake. I know it's important for you to be there this morning. Tell us more. Well, I'm here uh, with a, a bipartisan group, and by bipartisan, I mean uh, Army and Marines, but also also Republican and Democrat, Congressman Mike Waltz and Congressman Seth Moulton, Florida, Massachusetts, and they are two of the large group of people, a few dozen uh, members of Congress, all veterans, who were here rather humbly scrubbing the Vietnam Veterans Memorial, um, and Congressman Waltz has been spearheading this for, I guess this is the third year you've done it. Why, yeah. why did you organize it and why was it important to you? Well, I think it's um, incredibly important for two reasons, Jake. One, uh, it's good for us. It's good for us as members of Congress to come down here to see these 58,000 names. Uh, and uh, as my first platoon sergeant used to say, 
get our minds right as a reminder of why we're here and for those of us who are still out on uh, freedom's frontiers depending on us to do the right things in Congress. And then number two, this is good for Americans to see. This is good for Americans to see us coming together, sitting our differences aside, uh, and uh, appreciating that freedom isn't free. Uh, and especially for our Vietnam veterans, uh, which we still have three in the House of Representatives, uh, we learn so much from them uh, about what they went through when veterans weren't appreciated when uh, people literally wouldn't even put on their job application that they were a Vietnam veteran because the country had, for the first time in history, turned against them. Uh, so all for all of those reasons, we'll do this every year, uh, and I'll try to do this every year I'm in Congress. It's really moving. And Congressman Moulton, um, the first thing you all did was remove the letters and pictures and gifts that people had been leaving here, put them to the side so then you could wash. And, and when you pick up a picture or a letter, it, it's just, it's so heartbreaking. It's incredibly powerful. I mean, to, to be here this morning, to, to see that every single one of those names was a, a father, a brother, a, a son or a daughter, sister. And to appreciate what they gave to America, what they gave to all of us, to a country that at the time didn't even appreciate their sacrifices. And Mike's right, it's a reminder of, of all the young men and women who are still out there standing on the ramparts of freedom around the globe and are counting on us to come together and do the right thing in Washington. And who are you, I mean, I know probably too many people to name, but if, if I had to just say, who are like one or two people that you're thinking about this Memorial Day weekend, who would they be? Well, I'm thinking about my uncle, Greg Waltz, who was a helicopter pilot. Uh, he lived, his co-pilot didn't. Uh, his co-pilot's on that wall. Uh, you know, I come from a long, even though I defected and went Army, a long line of, of Navy and, and, and Marine Corps veterans. Uh, and so, uh, Seth's right, you're right. When you see those pictures, mm. how young they were, uh, their friends, their family, that, you know, they don't get to enjoy them this, uh, this Memorial Day. Uh, it's, a, it's a reminder. Uh, and it's a reminder of how controversial this memorial was. The fact it's also a reminder, though, of how great America is. The fact that this memorial uh, was designed by a Chinese American woman uh, who was an immigrant and a college student uh, at the time uh, is is just incredibly powerful. And we learned also today, I learned anyway, from one of the speakers about this was when uh, it was built. It, there were only three memorials on uh, when, when the, one of the guys was growing up. And now there are all these war memorials because, and this was the first one of them. Yes, in fact, we just got approval for the 9-11 uh, war memorial to uh, remember all of those that we lost in Iraq and Afghanistan. And it's going to be placed, they just announced the decision to place it uh, between the Vietnam uh, Veterans Memorial and the Lincoln Memorial. So it will have a prominent uh, place on the wall, on the mall, on the National Mall for um, you know, for all those we've lost so so recently in our wars and who won't have the opportunity this Memorial Day to, to be with their friends and family and, and build a life back here in America. Poppy uh, and Caitlin, it's just, uh, you know, with all the divisions in Washington and all the anger throughout the country, uh, it is um, humbling uh, to participate and watch something like this. Uh, Congressman Waltz was nice enough to invite uh, CNN to, to participate in, and, and film this and be part of it. And uh, it's just very moving. 
please tell them we really appreciate that uh, to both of them. And Jake, to you for always highlighting veterans issues. Always, always. We appreciate it. Thank you. And it is, you know, such a rare moment to see a Democrat or Republican standing there talking about this. And Washington is also such a, a special place to be on Memorial yeah, Day. I know you're saying you're, you miss it this time of year. Well, and it was something that I didn't fully appreciate until I lived there. And, you know, they're there at the Vietnam Memorial and they, they talked about having to move. There are so many flowers and, and letters and cards, but also to go to Arlington National Cemetery yeah. is probably the most humbling thing you can do. He was talking about how young people are. You go to Section 60, you see, you know, uh, those numbers on there of just how young they were, early 20s. Yeah. Um, it's really special. Yeah. Thanks to Jake for that. Okay, head, the economy, the GDP report, which means how much did our economy grow, just came out, what it says about how we're doing. It also comes ahead of a week of a critical deadline to make a deal on the debt ceiling. The ratings agency, Fitch, overnight warning that the U.S. could lose that perfect credit rating. A top Republican in Congress, Foreign Affairs Chairman Mike McCall, joins us next. All right, news on the economy. The U.S. economy grew faster in the first quarter than previously reported, increasing 1.3 percent in Q1, up from an estimate initially of 1.1 percent. Jobless claims also came in higher than last week's revised numbers. Both data points come just a day before the Fed's preferred inflation gauge comes out. Caitlin. Also overnight, the credit ratings agency Fitch placed the U.S. on rating watch negative, which is not a good thing. It means the credit rating agency could downgrade the U.S. debt if lawmakers don't agree on a bill that raises the debt limit. Sources inside the Republican Party are warning that they believed as of last night, prospects were grim for passing a debt limit increase by June 1. That is despite negotiators continuing to vow they are making progress on a potential deal. Last night on the House floor, the Republican Majority Leader Steve Scalise congratulated his party for having passed their version of a debt ceiling bill through the House while criticizing the Democratic-led Senate for failing to do the same. The House has already voted to address the debt ceiling. In fact, on April 26th, the House is not in order that for more than four weeks, the Senate has not even taken up action on that bill. In fact, the Senate's not even in session today or this week. Scully's obviously being booed by Democrats in the chamber there. He announced the House is going on recess later today, but members will get a 24 hours heads up if they need to return for a vote. Should President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy strike a deal? Joining us now is the Republican Congressman Mike McCall of Texas, who is also the chair of the Foreign Relations Committee, or House Foreign Affairs. Thank you so much for, for being here today. You said you had hoped to get a deal by the end of this week. Where do talks stand right now? I think we're getting very close. I'm uh, uh, the eternal optimist. Uh, I know that uh, Kevin McCarthy's been meeting with the president, uh, you know, one-on-one, but also the staff has been working very hard. And I think uh, it's really down to details at this point. Nobody really wants to default on the full faith and credit of the United States. I think, as you pointed out, it would have a disastrous effect on our financial markets. Um, so, uh, as, as I understand it, it could be as early, a deal could be cut as early as tomorrow. Um, and then lawmakers, uh, uh, they'd have to write the bill and then 72 hours, we come back, which would be next, uh, probably Wednesday is my guess, um, uh, uh, to vote on a, a debt ceiling, uh, increase 
along with meaningful uh, spending cuts. So if they could reach a deal as soon as tomorrow, does that mean lawmakers should still leave Washington today if no deal is made by then? Well, what they do is uh, typically they have to write the bill, of course, uh, and write it according to the details of the compromise. And then, uh, and then there's a 72-hour period uh, by House rules. Um, and then it goes to the Rules Committee, then it goes to the floor. So, um, you know, I'm just, uh, again, this is speculative, but I would say uh, midweek next week. And so I think lawmakers will probably return Monday or Tuesday uh, and then possibly vote on Wednesday. At least I hope so. I, I don't think anybody wants to default on this. Um, look, we passed a good bill. Now, we voted to raise the debt ceiling responsibly, but we wanted you know, spending cuts in return for that. Um, and that's what's being negotiated right now. Are Republicans prepared to make any new concessions that you're aware of that would get them to a deal by tomorrow with the White House? Well, as I understand, the, the uh, president wants to cap spending at 2023 levels. Uh, the speaker and, and Republicans want to cap it at 2022. That's non um, that's discretionary non-defense spending. And so that's really where the negotiations lie right now. And, and also the uh, the covid uh, unspent covid funding. Um, those are really the two big uh, highlights that are mm-hmm. being negotiated right now. You keep talking about how bad it would be if the U.S. defaults. That seems pretty obvious to everyone. Economists say that as well. But I want you to listen to something that former President Trump said about the idea of the U.S. defaulting on its debt. We have to start paying off debt. But when we have a debt limit, and they use that very seriously to me, they came in, Schumer came in with Nancy Pelosi, and they were using, we'll violate it, we'll do whatever. They talked a whole lot different than they do right now. I say to the Republicans out there, congressmen, senators, if they don't give you massive cuts, you're going to have to do a default. Are those comments from the GOP frontrunner reckless? Well, look, we, uh, this is my 10th term in Congress, and we go through this. I've seen this movie many times. And we, we go, go to the brink. Uh, sometimes the government's been shut down. It doesn't favor anybody. Um, and I think responsibly, it's not the right move. And, um, you know, I think it's important that we reach, you know, a compromise. And I, th- I think we will, you know, in this case, um, you know, we've done this before. And the few times that we have shut down the government, it's been very temporary. And we have seen the markets respond in a very negative way. So, uh, you know, I, I think that what I think the what the former president's trying to say is we're at a thirty-two trillion dollar debt uh, right now for the nation. Uh, we're handing that down to our children, and we we have to start you know taking responsibility for that. Uh, we can't sustain this path. A thirty-two trillion dollar debt that we're going to pass down is to me, is really immoral and irresponsible. But what he was saying is it was a different standard when he was in office, and he said they shouldn't use the debt limit as a negotiating tactic, which is now what's happening. And he said it's different just because he's no longer president. But I do want to ask, you're also the chair of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. As I said, you're investigating the exit of Afghanistan, the withdrawal. You were at the State Department able to view some key documents. Have you heard from State Department officials whether or not they are going to share those documents with the rest of the members of your committee yet? And if so, are you prepared to pull that contempt resolution that you had prepared for Secretary Blinken? 
Well, I, I did have a chance to read the uh, classified cable. Um, very stark, dire warnings from our embassy employees, 23 of them, on the ground in Kabul a month before it fell. Uh, everything they predicted actually happened. And it's unfortunate the administration didn't listen to what they were saying because they were actually spot on. Uh, and I applaud them for taking the courageous step to do a descent cable, which is very extraordinary, Caitlin. It's very rare that that's done. And so um, the way I look at this is I got to read it and sort of the ranking member. But, you know, I think the rest of the members of the committee uh, pursuant to the subpoena have every right to see this as well. We have a lot of Afghan Afghanistan veterans, you saw two of them uh, uh, with the tapper and that piece prior. And, uh, you know, the, the two that chair the oversight, one, Brian Mast, who lost his legs in Afghanistan, um, and, and the other one, Jason Crow, the Democrat, served in Afghanistan. I can't really look them in the eye and say, hey, I got to read this thing, but you're not going to get access to it yourself. Um, frankly, I think the American people should be able to read what their embassy employees were thinking at that time. Their state of mind is critical a month prior to the fall of Afghanistan. Um, and everything they predicted in that cable actually happened. Uh, and that is the, the immediate collapse of Taliban taking over, leaving American citizens behind, and our Afghan partners that we promised we would protect and save them, and yet we left them behind only be, to be hunted down by the Taliban. I think... Uh, it's really incredulous. And I don't, I'm negotiating with the secretary to answer your question. Okay. I prefer not to go down the, the contempt road. And I don't think he wants to either. He'd be the first secretary of state ever to be held in contempt right. by Congress. So no word on whether you're prepared to pull that resolution. One last question. Yesterday, we saw Florida Governor Ron DeSantis announce that he is running for the Republican nomination in 2024. Last night, he was asked about a key issue that is going to be asked to every Republican presidential candidate that was on Ukraine. This is what he said. If you are elected president, you may be the first one in a while uh, to have worn the uniform. How would you address the ongoing war in Eastern Europe between Russia and Ukraine on day one of a Ron DeSantis presidency? Well, first, I think what we need to do as a veteran is recognize that our, our military uh, has become politicized. Uh, you talk about gender ideology. You talk about things like global warming that they're somehow concerned. And that's not the military that I served in. We need to return our military. He didn't really answer that question. He, he didn't answer that question. Do you believe anyone who is running for your party's nomination for president should be able to clearly articulate their position on Ukraine? I do. I think uh, they should be honest with the American people where they stand. And this is a very important issue. You know where I stand on this. I think we, we absolutely need to support Ukraine in this fight against Russian aggression. When I went to, to Taiwan and when I was in Asia, all the leaders there said whatever happens in Ukraine uh, impacts Taiwan. This is a, a struggle for the global balance of power. Uh, Putin and Xi, Chairman Xi, China, are allies. Uh, Putin has decided to invade uh, Europe, largest invasion since World War II, and Chairman Xi is threatening the Pacific, the likes of which we haven't seen since my dad's war, World War II. And, and so I think uh, an honest discussion is important with any candidate. Um, I do think privately 
And I've talked to advisors to a lot of these uh, potential uh, nominees that privately they do support what we're doing. Um, but they need to have the, the moral courage to stand up and speak the truth about what's happening in Ukraine, including the war crimes and the atrocities that I get briefed on uh, that are really outrageous and just um, sickening, to be honest. Yeah. And I should note, Trump, who is the front runner, also wouldn't say if he wanted Ukraine to win or if Putin was a war criminal. But Congressman Mike McCall, chair of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, we always appreciate your time on this show. Thanks for so much for coming on this morning. Thanks, Caitlin, and congrats on your new show. Thanks so much. We're going to miss her, Congressman. All right, two of the most revered trophies in American sports, the NBA's Larry O'Brien Trophy and the NHL's Stanley Cup. They're here. There. I can't believe they're letting you oversee them, Harry, but we have the morning number, a big zero that's next. What happened when Larry met Stanley? Well, they went to the Cats Deli, of course. We are talking about two of the most revered trophies in American sports. Not about football, but the NBA's Larry O'Brien Trophy and the NHL's Stanley Cup, both of which have taken home, been taken home by some of the biggest names in their leagues. The two trophies have toured New York City ahead of the NBA and NHL 2023 finals, both set to get underway in the first week of June. The next stop on their journey right here at studio, CNN This Morning, with our very own senior trophy reporter, <laughs> Harry Enten. Harry, I'm assuming this morning's number is two? Uh, I got to tell you, you know, five-year-old Harry is so excited right now. My goodness gracious. They're right over here. I can touch them. Ah. It You're warms. not supposed to get that close, actually. I, <laughs> there's a restraining order in place. Uh, look, what's so amazing about this is, you know, if we think about the NBA and Stanley Cup championships, zero times have they been won by the same city in the same season. And that could change this year with the Heat and the Panthers down in Florida on the NHL side. But the fact is, the fact that the two of these are in the same place at the same time is something that is truly unique. And you know, you're wondering, you're looking at these things. How heavy are these trophies? Well, the NBA, the Larry, 29 pounds. You look at the NHL, look at that, 34.5 pounds. So these are quite heavy things. That is why I'm not going to be picking them up. I could probably not pick up any trophy that was more than 10 pounds. And then you're just wondering, who are these guys? Well, Larry O'Brien was a former NBA commissioner. Well, Frederick Stanley, in fact, was a Canadian governor general who donated the original cup to the amateur hockey champion of Canada. Of course, now it's, of course, the Stanley Cup professional. And if you're just wondering of how many of these trophies exist, there are 49 of the Larry O'Briens are awarded every year to the winner. There are only three Stanley Cups. There's just one that goes around to the different cities, one the Hall of Fame, and the original. This is not the original. Guys? Which one's heavier? This one is the heavier. The bigger one? Slightly heavier. <laughs> I, it, this one is slightly heavier. I'm definitely not lifting it. No way, no how. <laughs> I knew all that, right? Of course yeah. you did. Not. <laughs> Thanks, Harry. Thanks, Bye, Harry. Keep an eye on those. All right, to see who takes home the Stanley Cup this year, you can tune into TNT for the NHL final. Until then, it is game five of the NBA's Eastern Conference Finals tonight. Poppy is going to be watching very closely. All of it. So, we're here. 
Today is Caitlin's last day on the show. She is not going far. So we're really excited for you. 9 p.m. prime time, lots of sleep. But before you go, I've learned a lot sitting next to my friend Caitlin at this desk. Here are just a few things. First, Auburn must never win. Roll Tide. Yes. Second, Nick Saban, whoever that is, apparently can do no wrong. No wrong. Third, dress to impress. And most importantly, if you're a politician or anyone in power and you think you can pull a fast one on Caitlin Collins or try to dodge her questions, think again. In all seriousness, you have been uh, such a big part of this show. You've made so much news, like this sit-down you did with the Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin. Remember that? And of course, your coverage from Poland surrounding President Biden's surprise trip to Ukraine. You brought your signature-styled interviews with lawmakers here at home, like with Senator Rick Scott. And we cannot forget the fun moments, even ones at my expense. <laughs> a day after Lohan agreed to pay $75,000 in a fine on top of the 25000 he earned from the company, uh, soldier boy Austin Mahone, Lil Yachty, Neo, and Akon also find the SEC also charged crypto entrepreneur Justin Sun with securities fraud, market manipulation, and failing to disclose paid relationships with celebrities. <laughs> That's Caitlin laughing at me. Saying Un- Lil Yachty. Unable to pronounce the names of celebrities. <laughs> she almost made me not be able to finish that read. <laughs> In all seriousness, the gift of this show for me has been you. Thank you for all the laughs, the fun, the many Starbucks orders, mostly the friendship. So I was thinking about this last night, and I was reminded of this article I read from my hometown paper, the Minneapolis Star Tribune, in 2015. It was when Fleetwood Mac was going back on tour together. And uh, Stevie Nicks said this of her longtime friend, Christine McVie. She said, I never want her to ever go out of my life again, and that has nothing to do with the music and everything to do with her and I as friends. And I feel the same, and I am so proud of you, and I can't wait to see you shine in prime time. And what picture is in your office? Them. Stevie Nicks and Christine McVeigh. Because you gave it to me, like, the third week of our show, and it will remain in my office, and I'm still going to call you every day. (laughs) Don't you love it when I call you? Poppy knows how much I love to talk on the phone. Every day. We'll still be on the same floor. I'll just be in different time zone, essentially, but we'll still be together. And I'll be watching you every single morning and everyone else here because you've done such an amazing job. And we love you. Truly. Bye. Not a colleague, you're my friend. Thanks for watching. See you at New Central Starts right after this break. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.